Foster care adoption is not a financial question. It's a heart question. I say that because after you spend zero to $2,500 on the process, get the federal adoption tax credit, and the children you adopted receive free healthcare until age 18, this really isn't a money question. It's a decision you make with your heart. Are you willing to help a child or sibling group heal and thrive? Are you willing to adjust your life to be a child's forever family? But more deeply, are you willing to deal with your own past wounds and hurts to become an adoptive parent? Hi there, my name is Marcy Bursack and I am your personal foster care adoption mentor. I've been through this experience myself adopting a pair of siblings. My heart for the remaining 113,000 children who are still waiting to be adopted led me to use a stimulus payment to publish the Forgotten Adoption Option, a 70 page guide through this process, and then launch this podcast a month later. Then in 2022, I wrote a children's book called Are You a Forever Family? And I launched the Forgotten Adoption Option app, which spells out exactly what to expect if you plan to grow your family through foster care adoption. You can find all of these resources at ForgottenAdoptionOption.com. I am so delighted that you're tuning in and I wanna welcome you to be real, real about your heart, real about any questions that are running through your mind. In season three, monthly episodes will cover strategies for thriving as an adoptive family. You might also enjoy season one, where you can hear personal stories of adoptive parents and adopted children, and in season two episodes, where guests explain how to adopt U.S. children who are waiting for you in the foster care system. Whether you want to begin the adoption process right now or in the future, my heart is to help conquer the confusion and fears of the foster care adoption process so that fewer children continue to wait to be adopted. Welcome to the Forgotten Adoption Option podcast. I am very excited. In this episode, we're going to hear and celebrate how Mississippi is increasing their pace for adoptions from foster care. Commissioner Andrea Sanders has been the commissioner of the Mississippi Department of Child Protection Services since November 2020. Ironically, that's when my first book came out. So that's like cool timing. And she says, every day I throw on my CAPE, it's an acronym, C-A-P-E, which is a meaning of her core values, compassion, accountability, professionalism, and excellence. And she says she challenges her staff to do the same. She says, our work is too important to not give it our all each and every day. It is truly a new day at the Mississippi Department of Child Protection Services. And I implore my fellow professionals and all Mississippians to lock arms with us to protect our children by investing in Mississippi families. Commissioner Sanders, so happy to have you here. Hello, hello. Thank you, Marcy. Good to, good to be here. I have- Looking forward to talking with you. Same. Earlier this year, I came across an article in U.S. News and World Report, which shared that Mississippi is intentionally paving the path towards permanency and is on track to increase adoptions by 25% over this current fiscal year. I was overjoyed. I may have cried a little bit of happy tears. And I just really wanted to reach out to Andrea and congratulate her and learn how this was happening. And so that's where we are today. So Andrea... You have a really interesting story. Can you tell us what led you to a career in human services and most recently to your appointment as Mississippi Department of Child Protection Services Commissioner? Well, Marcy, I um, when I came out of college, I had majored in psychology. I don't know that I had given a lot of thought to what I would do with the rest of my life, but I knew that I wanted to help people. And um I looked for a way to be a therapist. I originally started out looking into uh, maybe a PhD in psychology and I got good advice to go get an MSW. It's a very versatile degree. 
And I realized in about my first six weeks of graduate school that I did not like doing therapy with people. It was frustrating, Oops. <laughs> but I love working um, in systems. And I really loved, I loved analyzing policy and looking for ways to make big impact in systems in people's lives rather than sort of in the one, one-on-one, you know, therapeutic environment. Um, I spent the first 10 years of my career as a social worker, working with children and adolescents, mostly in mental health settings, um, in some uh, large trauma medical centers, um, and particularly in the the trauma center, um, I saw a lot of abuse firsthand, uh, or the the results of abuse um, when kids came into the ER, and and certainly kind of a the worst case scenarios. But um, I I eventually went back and got a law degree, and um, I've worked in private sector and state government about half and half in my life. And the last five years I've worked in state government. And when this, when Governor Reeves was elected in 2020, um, I worked closely with a lot of his staff in transitioning uh, because of, of my role at the Department of Human Services at that time and helped them navigate a lot of um, turmoil and um, so I, we got to know each other over uh, the, the first 10 months of his administration, and eventually he asked me to take take on this challenge. So you said he asked yes. me if I could, he said, <laughs> do you think you can fix uh, CPS? And I didn't know what to say to that. Um, he said, the answer is yes. <laughs> And I said, anyone who tells you very quickly that, yes, I definitely can fix it is you should be very dubious of them. It's it's not uh, there's no simple fix for um, large state agencies. And especially when we're we're delving deeply into family life and that's complicated. You know, it's it, to me, it's kind of sacred space. And um, so, it, it you know, it's. It's not work that lends itself to a, a very easy solution. Doesn't sound like you like easy though. It sounds like you're a helper and you're like, but I want more. I want to be able to help in in deep ways, which is interesting. And I know some of our listeners are social workers who work in the child welfare space. Some of them even are therapists and things, as you mentioned, your early intent. You had a master's degree in social work, then a law degree. So I'm curious, what inspired you to go to school again and get that law degree? And then what has that degree helped you do that maybe you couldn't do with just the, the social work degree. Gosh, I love to learn. Um, I think I would go back and get a degree every five to 10 years if I could afford to stop my life. Free and, or something and, and there was time. Yeah. 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 Um, the law degree particularly gave me tools um, that I didn't have as a social worker. Um, I really, though, the work is really similar. Um, and in fact, sometimes almost the same that I have have additional tools in my tool bag. Um, the courts are, that's a really, um, I, I, I love the, the court system in the United States and I love the law. Um, I think that it is a an opportunity to affect change system systemically that, you know, you can do through policy and, and administration and agencies, but that additional leverage of using the court system is um, 
you know, really, really can be a catalyst for change. So um, that's why I went back to law school. Uh, I think that what I've learned about child welfare work since I took this job is that it's not the the child welfare system is not this agency. This agency is a fundamental part of the child welfare system, but it is only part of it. And I would say that this work, especially in Mississippi, is it's largely driven by the courts. Um, you know, it's a very serious thing to take go into a family, take a child out of someone's custody. Um, take them away from their parents and keep them in custody and then make decisions about where that child should live for the remainder of their life. And so it should be, it, it should be a serious legal matter to do that. You know, it's, it's difficult to take someone's land in this country and it should be difficult to take someone's child. So um, that combination of experience has been really helpful for this job. Um, sometimes I think that you know, I joked that I just have a short attention span and I keep looking for new degrees to add on, <laughs> but it turns out that it was the perfect combination in this role. That's incredible. I, I know we have some social workers that might be like, well, that might be an interesting next step for me and, and to be able to influence in a different way. So I appreciate you sharing that. Okay. The big meet here, Andrea, that I am so excited about. So during your time as commissioner, so again, you started November, 2020, it's been a little over like two years, like a short period of time. And you've aided Mississippi in finalizing adoptions at a record-breaking pace. So can you share with us how many children have you helped leave the foster care system to be adopted into forever families? And can you share with us anything about how you fixed or changed the speed to help children have more of that permanency? So Marcy, um, right now, we are, we're working through the legislature to to really remove some barriers in the legal process that I think will have the most long-term impact on moving children to permanency. I've really educated on um, what it costs to keep a child on average in the foster care system. Uh, it's roughly $40,000 a year in Mississippi. And so, you know, when you start to quantify the actual financial cost to the state and then demonstrate um, to me, when a child is in foster care in the state's custody, it's not an ideal place to be. We are a state agency will always be a poor substitute for a family. We are large. We are not nimble. Um, so children should only be in the state's custody every single day they need to be, but not a day longer. And that message um, I have a sense of urgency about that. I think that um, a one-month delay in a one-year-old's life is a tenth of their life. And so really, I think just raising awareness about how important, you know, a three-month continuance in a court case in a one-year-old's life is a quarter of their life. So um, that, you know, delays of any kind in our agency, waiting the full 30 days we have to finish a packet. You know, if if we can do it in two days, why don't we do it in two days instead of 30 days? So um, it's been looking at a lot of processes, um, really, you know, I told you earlier, I call it a hammer and chisel kind of solution that right now we're just tracking 
um, where each child is in the legal process. And that's hard to do because they are they, they have to go through three different independent legal causes of action in Mississippi to get to permanency. Um, the early phase of the case happens in one court and an elected prosecutor on behalf of the state prosecutes the claims. Uh, then once a child has been, their permanency plan has changed to adoption, uh, a, a TPR proceeding has to be started with the agency as the party for the first time with other attorneys representing the agency in a separate cause of action. And everything that happens in that, that case is dependent on whether or not um, the proper findings were made in the first, first case. So it's just, you know, it is a, it's a structure that is designed with, I don't know that design is the right word, but the way it is cobbled together has lots of places for kids to get hung up in the system. And so it takes a lot of diligence to just make sure that we pull those barriers down and keep keep the kids moving. Um, long term, I would like to see our state really create a more uniform legal process. And um, so I think that I will get some things this year in the legislature that will help start uh, a path towards that. We call it our pathway to permanency legislation. Um, that it, you know, we won't we won't get that all accomplished this year. Just to me, I, I love that you're you're faced with this really challenging reality. And instead of going, well, never mind. They're, they're, everything you just shared with me, Andrea, you talked so much about the child and like, what does that mean? And by day, I work in technology, and we do a lot with data and numbers and telling stories. And I just want to commend that you you know that it's forty thousand dollars per child, you, you know, per year. Like th those are such important things to look at to say like this this isn't okay, um, and it's not okay for the child. And like, look how we're we could be better stewards of this these resources. And so, yeah, you, it sounds like you have a big <laughs> task that you're in the midst of, but it sure sounds like you've got a really great vision for how you could kind of chisel away, as you mentioned. And, and so in the same article that I mentioned earlier, you say that adopting children through foster care can be quote, logistical, a logistical legal nightmare. And some of our listeners are considering adopting through the foster care system. And you and I kind of talked about this a little bit offline before the episode, but sometimes the stories, right? The ones that we hear that are often real of it taking forever or the unknown can prevent families from starting the process. It can really be a turnoff. So I'm curious from your angle, what encouragement can you offer to these families knowing what you know inside the system? You know, I think that um, first really getting to know and, you know, it's hard to even say, get to know your caseworker well, um, because we have a high turnover rate right now. We're working very, very diligently to try to bring that down because that's critical to the uh, quality of care we're able to deliver to children. But um, I think going in with your eyes wide open and understanding that um, if you're adopting from state custody, First of all, you're adopting a child who has been removed from their parents' custody for a reason. So they have likely suffered some sort of trauma um, and maybe repeat trauma. And so the, the safeguards and the assurances that the state has to have 
are different. The bar is higher for these kids because re-traumatizing them over and over is, is the worst thing we can do. So it is a very different path to adoption. And um, I think that the first thing that I, I encourage parents to do is, is to understand what they're walking into. Uh, you and I talked about, you know, if you're going to climb Mount Everest, uh, then knowing what year you need to take and what you're in for, to me, is far better than than waiting off, you know, and heading up the mountain with a light backpack and some chacos on your feet, you know. The absolute <laughs> wrong just, equipment. Yeah, you're not going to make it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So um, I think, you know, I think candor from the agency about what the process looks like. I think also um, as an agency, we've been so siloed in our part of, you know, one part of the agency does uh, the, the investigation part of the work. And then, you know, by the time you get to adoption, somebody completely different is working with the child. So we're restructuring some things internally to create a more seamless path through the agency uh, we have lots of room to to pull down barriers. Um, one thing I discovered um, about a year ago, I think, by listening, I do a lot of listening to parents, to unhappy uh, potential foster parents, potential uh, adoptive parents, um, biological parents, and I'll, every time I listen, I learn um, something systemic. I call them nuggets. I, I get a little nugget and it tells me something else in the system that is, it's not just causing that problem for that family, but, you know, it's something we can change and really uh, impact lots of families. But one nugget was that while we have kept our foster parent subsidies, um, basically commensurate with cost of living, we, we've we're under a lawsuit that the state's been under for many years. And one of the requirements is that we uh, modify our foster board rates to, to meet inflation. But then as I started digging, I realized we hadn't changed our adoption subsidy rates in anyone's memory in the agency. Wow. People who've been here 30 years. So I, I don't know when they were changed last. I might just not have the right people that I've talked to yet. But it became very clear that that's, a, that's an internal fiscal barrier to moving children to permanency. Uh, it came to my attention because I have a single mother who was a teacher and she had three siblings. Um, the, the placement was working out beautifully, but she financially was going to have to go from, from to, to basically cutting her um, additional subsidy uh, by 60%. And that just wasn't financially feasible for her. So the judge was allowing the children to stay in foster care and she remained their foster parent in order to financially be able to afford to take care of them. And that just doesn't make sense. We're already spending the money. Um, let's get them to permanency. And it, it's just a mentally, a um, it's a game changer for families to be able to walk away intact with that legal permanency. Uh, you, you know, it, it, you know, living in limbo for years and years 
in foster care is just, it's, it's not good for the family. It's not good for the child. Right. And the message it sends the child to, and just to explain to our listeners that might not know. So subsidy, every state's a little different, but um, you get like a, a cash payment, if you will, per month um, until the child is 18. If they're in foster care, they were adopted in foster care. And across the country, the trend right now is that when a child's in foster care, it's a higher monthly rate than if they're adopted. I know that I think Kansas was a state recently I saw that's trying to see if they can actually reverse that and make the adoption subsidy higher than when the child's in foster care. But what Andrea is pointing to is that if a family is relying, which it's, it's meant for that, the subsidy is meant to help care for the child, whether it's food or extracurriculars, whatever it is. And so if a, if a family says, well, we're fostering the child right now and we could adopt them, but we're going to get say $500 less and making up an arbitrary number, but it can really negate and prevent them from saying, I want to adopt this child when they're thinking I'm financially going to have to do a lot more than I am right now. And right now is working really well. So I really commend that you are really analyzing that um, and thinking about it differently. Cause I think it can really move the needle in a really positive direction. So Andrea, you stepped in to help improve a child welfare system in a state that has a lot of criticism. And there are people who want to make a difference in the child welfare system, but it can really feel impossible to get traction. And this is like just nationally, right? Like child welfare probably doesn't have the best positive uh, vibe around it right now. It could change. I think you and I are changing that, but I'm curious as we close, can you share your vision that you have either for your career or just kind of the future as you get up each day and you fight for Mississippi children? Cause you're, you're really fierce about this and you, you realize it's messy, but it's worth it. So I'd love to hear like, how do you keep going? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, that's a great question, Marcy. It's kind of, um, it, it is challenging work and it is exhausting and, um, generally the lifespan of a, a commissioner or head of an agency like this is two years. Uh, so I feel like I've, you know, I've made it past the first hurdle. Um, I do think it, there's so much to learn and so much to master to do this work well. Uh, the politics, the funding streams, the, you know, leading a 1,500-person agency, um, that it's a shame the lifespan is so short because you need, it, it takes two years to get your feet under you. Um I originally continued to sort of, I would get up each day and quit and then change my, you know, talk myself back into going back in. Um, and I, you know, really, I realized at some point that I was taking it more of a, how many days can I get up and keep doing this? Uh, and I, I, a wise person gave me a, a different way to look at um, how I approach this work. And that was, they said to make a bucket list and go out on your own terms. Um, so rather than thinking about how many more days can I endure, um, I've, I've started thinking in terms of what do I want to accomplish before I walk away? And um, there's some, there's, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit in this agency. We had not replaced our um, case management software system in over 20 years. Um, you know, we're functioning on this archaic, uh, cumbersome, clunky system. So we, the, the agency had already been funded to replace this case management system. It's basically the, the software that holds every child's story. And so it's really important. It's not just paperwork. It's, um, it's the only way a big state agency can actually stand in the shoes of parents. And so um, I think we need the most nimble technology that's out there. There is, uh, so we are in the process right now, we're in about the fifth month of a 
roughly two year build process to replace that system entirely. And I think, are you all working with eNoble? Is that what I understand? When I was at the Mississippi Child Welfare Conference, there was mention that at least some of Mississippi was using eNoble. And I mentioned it because Matthew Wallach, the founder and CEO of that product was just on the podcast too. So if people want to listen to what Matthew's doing to build case management technology, it's built over Salesforce. Maybe this is a different tool. We are not using, I know, I know several states are, we are using, um, we're working with Redmain, which is a a small vendor that um, we had to go through a long cumbersome procurement process state to, to purchase uh, this kind of software. Uh, they are they specialize in child welfare systems and have um, built several in Canada and in the United States. So I'm, I'm pleased with the process so far. Um, you know, it's kind of terrifying to build a system like that. But technology is so advanced now that, first of all, you don't have to go back and recode or hard code everything that you get wrong. Right. Um, so I've tried to really encourage my people. A, the bar was low. We have a terrible system now. So let's build something better than it. Um, you know, a good, solid working system. And uh, and then we'll keep enhancing it as we go. So I'd like to finish building that system. I'd like to, um, you know, really work continuously with the leg- legislature each year, building credibility so that they understand how important it is to continue to build on what we've done rather than start over every two years. So, um, <clears throat> and then, you know, I, um, we have a lot of training that we need to revise and we're restructuring internally a lot of the, the you know, I mentioned the structure so that, um, so that we streamline and remove barriers from moving children from what I call the front door to the back door. Um, I think I think that approach has helped me the most is to try to look at the system, uh, the agency, the laws and legislation, the policy, and the judicial system from the perspective of a child and what it looks like to them to come in the front door and back out the back door. And I think that that has been eye-opening for a lot of people who've been, the good news is there are a lot of people in Mississippi who really care about children and want to improve the system. Everybody has their own idea about how to do that, but demonstrating what it looks like from a child's perspective has been a powerful way to talk about where the flaws are. Cause we all can relate to that. We all we're children. I feel like I am so inspired. I feel very mentored in this space. Andrea, thank you for just sharing the real. I really, really value that. And I think our listeners are going to take away a lot about nuggets and Mount Everest. And I love, I love this part about, um, bucket list and like choosing your terms is, is what you want to accomplish. I think that's wonderful. And so I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. As a listener of the Forgotten Adoption Option podcast, you are helping to raise awareness about foster care adoption and the 113,000 adoptable children in the United States. By leaving a review, subscribing, sharing, and talking about this podcast, you can help a child and sibling groups find their forever family. If you only have time to do one, sharing is the most impactful way to help a child who is waiting to be adopted. If you'd like more information on adopting a child or sibling group through the foster care system, please visit my website, forgottenadoptionoption.com. 
There you will find how to get started using my new and free Forgotten Adoption Option app, and you can even order a copy of my book for adults, The Forgotten Adoption Option, which guides you through the entire process, and you can find my book for children of all ages, Are You Forever Family? You can pick from paperback, audio, and ebook formats, and you might even be able to find my books at your local library. Please keep me in mind as you're thinking of gift ideas and guest speakers. If you have any question about the process or you're wondering if you're even qualified to adopt, please reach out. Please send your friends and family my way too. You can easily find me by searching for Marcy Bursack on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. I intentionally carve out time each week to encourage and teach people just like you. I really appreciate you tuning in, caring, and sharing because every child deserves to be in their forever family.